The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Darren Smith. I'm senior pastor here at Tower View Baptist Church, and what a joy it is to have you with us this morning. Uh, This is our first time recording outside of the seminary who's been helping us the last several weeks, several months even. So thank you for uh, bearing with us as we go through the technology to do this. And we're finishing up our study of the book of James today. We've been in this study basically since early April as we've been asking questions about the pandemic, questions about what practical life looks like during this time. And and James is certainly a book that achieves that end. So today is, Lord, why should I pray? Lord, why should I pray? And as we step into this, I just want to read our text. We'll pray, and we'll get into our sermon from there. So if you have your Bible with you on your tablet, your your book, whatever you have, we're in James chapter 5, verses 13 through uh, 20. And this is what the Word of God says here this morning. "Is uh, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. For Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, someone and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May God bless the reading of his word. And again, thank you so much for joining us. We're so grateful you're here. If you're one of our Tower of regulars, if you're just checking out our church, if you're not a Christian, we're here to study the passage we just read. So we pray for your attentiveness. We pray that you will give God your ears this morning, spiritual and physical, as it is, as it were, and may God be glorified. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come before you on this last study of uh, the book of James. Lord, what a, what a ride it has been. We have covered many topics. We've covered many situations. And Father, we pray, as, as we always pray as we go to your word, that we do not have authority over your word, but your word, your perfect, inerrant, inspired, infallible, uh, sufficient word has authority over us. Because Lord, you've given us this word, the Bible, in order to show us how we are to live in this life and to live godly as we go through it. Father, thank you for for your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that he is lifted high this morning, that the gospel is clear, and everything points back to him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometimes, you know, as Christians or sometimes as people of faith, we, uh, we act like stray cats, and that sounds funny, but this past week we were uh, gone, and I want to thank Pastor Nelson again for preaching in our absence. And uh, one of uh, the animals at my mother-in-law's 
uh, property was a, was a cat within the family. He wasn't a stray cat, but he acted like this. And sometimes I think Christians do this as well. You know, cats or, or stray cats, they, they love the attention. They love all the, ooh, you're a pretty kitty remarks. They love all the free handouts like milk and things that you give them. They love all the love. But when someone tries to take that cat to the vet or adopt it as its own or, or care for it in a more regular, routine, household way, uh, that cat goes nuts. You can't trim its nails. You can't brush its scraggly fur. You can't make sure it's healthy because that cat is going to protest. It's going to bite. It's going to scratch. It's going to claw. It's going to run away. It's going to hiss at you because they want to call the shots and they want to be in control because after all, they are stray. They're, they're runaways. They want to be the one to do that. And friends, I wonder, as silly as of connection that is, if that's how we often treat our prayer lives. Because sometimes we come to God and we love to hear the affections of His Word. We love to hear, you're my child. We love to hear, you, you've been saved by grace through faith and you're eternally secure. And we love all that comes with that. But when God tries to wrap Himself around us, so to speak, and He tries to give us His all, He tries to sufficiently allow us to live by grace through faith, in, through the Spirit, through all these things, we are like that cat. Our, our fangs come out, our claws come out, we scratch, we bite, because we don't want to give up. We don't want to do it, because we want some control of the situation and something that allows us to be the ones to call the shots. And you know, as we close the book of James, I think that's somehow what James is talking about, because he's closing this book on a topic of prayer. And as we get into this, I'm not an expert on prayer. I don't think anyone really is an expert on prayer, but I think Don Carson, D.A. Carson, a great theologian, said it this way. He said, the most urgent need of the church in the Western world today is the need to pray. We are too successful, and we don't need God unless it is convenient, end quote. And like that cat who, who often scratches and claws when he doesn't get his way, we do the same thing in prayer. Lord, if you would answer my prayers the way I want you to, or Lord, if you just take my advice, or Lord, if you just follow what I say every now and again, God, I think this would work well for both of us. But isn't this what Jesus warned against? Matthew 6, 7, and 8 says, When you pray, Jesus speaking, do not heap upon empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God's response to our prayers is not governed by our wordy explanations or desire or our, our, our selfish ambitions. It is governed by His knowledge of our real needs. And so when we pray, we are not to be like that cat, scratching and clawing for the things we want and only the things we want. When we pray, we don't say, I can do it, I don't need you, God. Rather, when we pray, we say, God, I'm not able to, but you are. Friends, is your prayer, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire, to put it another way? Have you lost heart in prayer, especially during this pandemic? Have you forgotten what we are to pray for and plead for before this thrice holy God? And that is our big idea today. If you're joining us and, and you're, you're seeing this for the first time, if you've been with us, the big idea is just it's kind of the summary of the sermon based on the text. And it's simply this, trials reveal our weakness, and weaknesses reveal our need, and the need moves us to pray, and prayer opens the door to God's endless supply. And there are simple ways to pray throughout the day that we don't find control. You can say, thank you, Lord. Help me, Lord. You know, forgive me, Lord. Lord, keep me from sin. I need you now, Lord. Lord, you're with me. 
And you could also pray, give me strength, Lord, or Lord, you know best. Lord, I surrender to you. I don't understand, Lord, but I trust you. And most of all, I love you, Lord. Everything seems more urgent than time to pray the way God wants us to pray. When we want to scratch and claw for what God doesn't have for us, we are showing that we don't trust Him in the meantime. But almost nothing is more important than time spent in prayer the way God wants us to. And James is going to show us how to pray. So in this final section of James, we're going to see especially four groups to pray about, four groups to plead for in prayer the way God wants us to, not selfishly, not clawing at everything, but submitting to Him and trusting Him with the results. And as we close this out, I just want to remind you, James is writing to a group of Christians scattered about uh, the known world at the time, Jewish Christians. Uh, they came from a background of, uh, of, of heritage and, and prominence and some pride. And after speaking last week about patience, he now closes with prayer, uh, a prayer about how to handle these last days and these last times. So let's get into it this morning. The first plea, the first prayer that we should have, he tells us, is a plead for suffering or a plea for suffering. Notice there at verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Sounds like the pandemic, doesn't it? I mean, everyone among us is suffering in some way, maybe not financially, maybe not economically, although that's happening even within our church. But he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's command in the text. And the Greek word here for suffering refers to any difficulty. It refers to anything that can be done that causes us angst or trouble or stress. And James's readers were suffering because of their Christian testimony. Because they believed that Jesus was risen from the dead, they were suffering for their faith. And church, don't think that's not us today too. We don't understand everything that's going on with the pandemic, but one thing is certain. Just because the pandemic is happening does not mean people's minds about God has changed. They're either for God or against God. And in James's reader's day, they were fighting these readers because they stood for the gospel truth. But if you're going through any trials of sort, James's answers is like a rifle shot in a bullseye. He says simply, pray. So you, you pray to God, you, you plea for the suffering, you plead for the suffering, you pray for the suffering is the first group he says for, and he says to do it through prayer. And it's easy to sit here and nod in agreement, but the question is, in your own life, in my own life, in our church's life, when we encounter difficulties, is prayer really our first response? It's certainly not the auto response, is it? It's not the thing that just pops out. If I'm left to myself, to my flesh, the automatic response is to suffering is to grumble and complain and throw a pity party. Insert Israel in the desert in Exodus right there. Or we question God and we say, God, why is this happening to me? But James counters all that with one simple word. He says, when life roughs you up, you pray. When you're suffering, pray. But we often pray as the last resort. After we've done everything we can do to try and fix the problem. You know, we scheme, we plan, we work hard, and then maybe we remember to play and pray and say, God, would you bless my efforts? Would you do that for me? And you can do more than pray after you prayed, but you shouldn't do anything until you have prayed. Prayer acknowledges your total dependence on God. It gets away from that, that stray cat response of only coming to Him when, when you think you've got it figured out or when you like what He's giving you. Prayer says to God, Lord, I can't even draw my next breath without you. If you don't work for your purpose and your glory, my competent efforts are going to fail. 
So when, so when you or someone you love encounters suffering, it, it encounters a roughing up, so to speak, in, in this life, pray for wisdom. James 1.5, in context. Pray for the ability to endure with joy. Pray for godly attitude through the pain. Pray that the works of God may be displayed in the trial. Pray that God uses the crisis for His purpose and for His glory. Pray that the fruit of the Spirit would grow in the lives of everyone involved. Because suffering should drive us to prayer. And as we go through these days, we are to pray to God when we are being roughed up, when we're suffering. But he goes on at the end of verse 13, and he says, not only are we to plead for the suffering, we're to, we're to proclaim to God, second subpoint here, first main point, to God when you're rejoicing. Proclaim to God when you're rejoicing. Look there at verse 13. He says, is anyone cheerful? Then let him sing praise. Is anyone cheerful? Again, James shoots a one-word answer. He says, sing. Doesn't mean you have to sing like our worship team. Doesn't mean you have to sing like Pavarotti. Doesn't mean you have to sing as the top 100 charts people sing. He just says, sing. He doesn't say how to sing. He doesn't say low or high. He doesn't say in a, in a tenor voice or a bass voice or an alto or soprano. But I think the, the most obvious thing here is what the Bible affirms. The most frequent command in the Bible, and most of these from the Psalms, is the word sing. You may think that singing when things are going well is easier than the command to pray when you encounter suffering, but I would argue it's not. The response of the flesh is to forget God when things go well, isn't it? I mean, when you're successful, God's probably on your mind, but not the first thing. That's why Moses in Deuteronomy 6 warned the Jews as they were about to enter the land that they needed to sing praises to God. And while I enjoy, as, as many do and were led in, the, the, the modern-day choruses, especially those that reflect the sound doctrine we have, I think also the old hymns of the faith, even as a younger pastor, always speak truth to me. The words of those hymns have sustained God's people through suffering and sufficiency for many generations, hundreds of years. And one of my favorites is How Firm a Foundation, based on Hebrews 13.5, and it says this. You can sing it if you like. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all, else, all hell rather, should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. And James says, as we close out this letter, that we are to plead for the suffering. We're to, we're, when life roughs us up, when, when life comes at us, we are to rejoice through singing, we are to pray. But these two extremes of James 5.13 show that God does not expect us always to be cheerful and upbeat. James allows that sometimes you will be down because of your suffering. And his directive is to pray. But when you're cheerful, you are to sing. And let me just say a word here. Many countries, many counties, many states even are restricting singing from going on. Now, you can have this debate till the cows come home, but friends, there is one thing that's very clear and very timely in this text. It is a command to sing. Now, whether you wear a mask when you sing in these days or you don't, I would encourage you not to give up the practice of singing. Pastors, encourage your church to sing. Church members, continue to sing. Do it safely, do it, do it wisely, but you do not give up singing to your God because that is command of Scripture. The most frequent command of Scripture is to sing.
So that's the first point. We are to plead for the suffering. But notice in verses 14 and 15, we are to plead for the sick. Look down there at your text again as we read verses 14 and 15. This is what it says. It's a, he says, another rhetorical question, this is the third one, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And verse 15, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Now, this is probably the most uh, uh, controversial, the most misunderstood, whatever, difficult to interpret interpret and apply correctly passage that we're in in James. But I, I do want to say that, that, that this, this is pretty straightforward, but I just want to talk about some of the ways that we are to plead for the sick in prayer. We're to plead for the sick in prayer is that second main point. Now, our Roman Catholic friends use this as the basis for, for what they call extreme unction. For the sake of time, I can't, I can't comment except to say I'm, I'm baffled at how a priest uh, can anoint a dying person so his soul will be ready for heaven uh, ever came out of the text of, of, uh, of this. But friends, you either know Jesus or you don't. You either have repented of your sins before you breathe your last breath or you have not. So if you're not a Christian watching this, I can't pour any amount of oil on your head. I can't pray any amount of prayers over your head. You yourself, sir, ma'am, young, old, have to accept Jesus Christ and come to know him. And I plead with you, if you're watching this, thank you so much for joining us. But make sure you too have come to the knowledge that Jesus alone saves. Not religion, not sincerity or good works or church attendance, but the risen Savior who gave his life for us. And while we were yet sinners, he died for our sins. But as we go on, I want to just talk about this first. So we are to plead for the sick, second main point here. And the Christian is under obligation to ask for healing. Is, any, is anyone among you sick? First, we must say that the sick, it is the sick person who's to call on the pastor elders, not vice versa. You know, as a pastor, uh, I think our church, we, we've kind of worked through this over the years, but we're not omniscient. We don't always know when you're sick. We don't always know all the information. We're often the last ones to get it, and that's not a gripe. That's just a reality. But we don't expect that we should know when you need prayer. You got to tell us. You got to reach out, and sometimes that's hard, but, but know that's an open door. That's what we're called to do. We are to be about the Word and prayer, Act 6. And, and, and so these verses intertwine physical illness with sin. James does not assume that the person is sick because of sin, but he indicates that it may be a cause. He says in that phrase, if anyone commits a sin, if anyone commits a sin. So before the sick person calls for the pastor elders, he needs to search his own heart and confess all his known sin to the Lord. He should be prepared that the pastors may ask him, do you have any unconfessed sin? And church, let's remind ourselves, 1 John 1, 9, if we, uh, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But also because a sick person is calling for the time of busy men. This isn't, uh, uh, again, this isn't a gripe. This isn't a woe is us. We, we know every, there's lots of jobs that are busy, but there's no such thing as a non-busy pastor. There's always something, Right? And this should be, I think, from the text, reserved for serious matters, not routine illness. Let me say that again. 
This should be the calling upon the elders, the pleading for the sick, especially from the, 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 the passage of the pastor elders in this text, should be reserved for serious matters, not routine illness. Now, let's be clear. If, you, if, if, you, if you've had a prolonged flu or prolonged cold or, you know, you got migraine headaches, or so, of course we're going to pray for you. But I think that the thrust of this is especially for those that are deeply and, 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 and life-threateningly sick. The word refers to excessive burdens. And so what we need to know is that, that, that we are to call upon, especially in times of dire circumstance. Look, if your illness or injury is something that affects your life, it's life-threatening, it's a chronic pain or weakness, prevents you from fulfilling your duties at home or work, or is one that is overwhelming you spiritually, you should probably reach out to the pastors. But I want you to see also that the, the pastors are under obligation to anoint for healing. The pastors are under obligation to anoint for healing. It says, let him call for the elders, the pastor elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James 5.14 directs the pastor elders to pray over him. This could imply laying on hands and anointing him with oil. And there's several interpretations that are suggested here. You know, some say that this refers to an ancient medicinal application of oil to the wounds, such as when the Good Samaritan, uh, if you remember that in Luke 10.34, he applied things to the, the, the hurt man. And so some think this means pray and use medicine, basically. That's what some say. And I agree that we should use medicine, but I'm not sure that's what James is getting at. You know, others say that the oil was a physical expression of the concern that was used to stimulate the faith of the sick person, much like Jesus used the mud uh, on the eyes of the blind man in John chapter 9. I mean, that's possible, but I, I think the view that the oil is a symbol uh, is, is not really where the text is headed. James says that it is the prayer of faith that heals, not the oil, but obviously it is not prayer, but God to whom we pray that heals us. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, he tells us to anoint with oil. And, and I'll, I'll save that for just a minute because I think the ultimate thing here is what verse 15 gets at, is that the Lord is ultimately under obligation to alter healing. Look back at verse 15. It says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and who the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, but what is the prayer of faith? I mean, what is James really getting at here? Well, I think what he's getting at is simply this. Some say this is the gift of healing that was limited to the apostolic age, uh, and I, think there, I don't think this gift is in view here. Others go to the extreme and say this is always God's will to heal, and I don't think that's right either. So, you know, if you aren't healed, they say, you must not have prayed with faith. I, I think that's a terrible way to encourage someone. If you've ever talked to someone who's lost a child or, or, or even a, a spouse as old as they are, you would be slapped in the face, I hope, for saying such a thing. Friend, this is not, it's cruel to say so that, that, that you didn't have enough faith, that's why your family member wasn't healed. If this were true, no faithful believer would ever get sick or die. But that doesn't square with either reality or the New Testament. I mean, Paul was not healed, was he, from his thorn in the flesh? God didn't heal Epaphrodites in Philippians 2 or uh, Triophimus in 2 Timothy 4.20. Uh, Paul urged Timothy to drink a little wine for his frequent stomach ailments, not to claim his healing by faith. And eventually, we're all going to get sick and die. Hey, you know what? The CDC and the World Health Organization just released a stat. Catch this. They said 10 out of 10 people are going to die someday. Did you get that? 
we're all going to die. It's destined for a person to die once, Hebrews 9, 27, and then face the judgment. So what is, what is this? What is happening here in verses 14 and 15? I mean, some argue that the prayer is a special assurance given to, to the elders that God will heal a person. But my problem with that is it's very easy to be mistaken. I don't know if God's going to heal a person, but I trust that God will do His will. So what is he getting at? He's saying that every prayer should be a prayer of faith because we should not ask anything of God unless we believe he's going to do it. We should not come to God and say, God, do this for me unless we really believe God's going to do it. And in that prayer, we're trusting and we're holding on to him that, Lord, whatever you want, do it. Lord, if you heal, great. If you don't, great. You're still good. But Lord, I'm going to pray for that heal, healing. I'm going to knock on that door. I'm going to do whatever it takes and gather as much prayer for this need until you answer that request. Just like the woman in Luke 18, the, the persistent widow who wouldn't leave the ruler alone until she granted his request, God says in Luke 18:1 that we should pray always and never give up. But here, and for me, is the difficult thing about applying this. We don't know God's will in advance. We just don't know it. So my understanding of this verse is this. If you're seriously sick and you have an injury that is debilitating, call the pastors or elders, Facebook us, FaceTime us, text us, whatever, for prayer. We will come and talk to you about your situation. We'll visit you as much as is possible in these days in a way that is appropriate and, and loving our neighbor. We may ask you if you're aware of any sins that you need to confess. Friends, we are not priests. We don't believe that you have to confess to us in a confessional. The only high priest we have is the one mediator, the one, uh, the one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. We are not some special class of people that have a red phone to God in our things that when something serious happens, we pray, but we are, as your shepherds, called to pray and honor God through that prayer. And we will pray to God for you who's mighty to heal. We'll pray with you, believing that God does heal, but we must submit to his sovereign will, which we will seldom know in advance. And if he chooses to heal you, we give him the glory because it wasn't the oil, it wasn't our prayers or faith that healed you. It was God himself and the thrust of verses 14 and 15. You know, we were told in verse 13 to plead for the suffering. Here we're to plead for the sick, but we're to lay it at what verse 14 says, relate it at the Lord's feet. It's in his hands. Plead for the sick. But he goes on in verses 16 and 18, not only plead for the suffering, you plead for the sick, but then in verses 16 and 18, you plead for the saints. Look at verse 16. And there's a therefore there, and as good Bible study has, you always ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? And he's summarizing verses 13 to, 16, 13 to 15. He says, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Therefore shows that this is a conclusion. The idea is, is that since the prayer for healing offered in faith accomplishes so much, and since God is anxious to forgive us uh, of the sins that we have, the whole community should be encouraged to confess their sins one to another and pray for one another. And when we do this, the health and the broadest sense of the community is going to be ensured. And you know, confession is like, like prayer for healing has also to be taken to some, some unwarranted, some crazy extremes. Some never do it at all. Some never confess their sins, but others may indiscreetly share things in public that should never be shared, right? 
generally the confession should be as public as the sin. If it is a private sin that you have, I think you confess it privately. You find a godly, trustworthy saint who will keep your confidence and not share that in gossip and confess it to him or her, you know, men to men, women to women. But if your sin hurts individuals, you confess it to those people and you ask for their forgiveness. If something has affected the entire church per Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, then ask the pastors for an appropriate time and place to make that confession to the church. But you don't need to air your dirty laundry from your marriage. If it's a private sin, keep it private. If it's public, there's a time and a place for that. You know, again, our Catholic friends use this verse, especially verse 16, to justify the practice of confessing your sins to a priest. I mentioned this a minute ago. But they seem to ignore the practice that is to be mutual, one to another. I doubt that the priest would appreciate it if, it's, if the one doing the confessing said, Okay, uh, priest Darren, uh, Father Darren, it's time for you to confess. Uh, James wasn't thinking about confessing to a priest, except in the sense that every believer is a priest. And all of us who've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ have the priesthood. Rather, what James is saying is that we're all struggling against sin and we need one another in the battle. We, we, we together need to plead for the saints, to plead for Christians, and that starts by confessing our sins. And we need help as we fight to establish and maintain God-word and God-dependent focus. This is why every time we do the Lord's Supper and we look for the days we gather in these days and watch the COVID crisis and consider what that means, that we look at what it means to gather. But every time we do the Lord's Supper, we always just take a moment to ask the congregation, is there someone in the church that you need to confess to, that you need to seek forgiveness from, or is there someone on the reverse that, 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 that has asked you to forgive them that you've withheld that forgiveness from? Whatever the situation, he says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Why? Because he goes on in verse 16 and says that, the char that character is essential for effective prayer. Notice the end of verse 16. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James has exhorted us to pray for one another and confess to one another so that we may be healed. That, that healing could be an illness, especially illness that may be resulted from unconfessed sin, or it may be a spiritual healing, since James has instructed us to confess our sins one to another. But his point is that whether your need is physical or spiritual, prayer is very powerful. But he qualifies it. He says the qualification for prayer is a righteous life. Look, if we have been justified by faith and saved by faith, we stand before God with a righteousness, an alien righteousness, Luther said, that is not our own. If we think we can approach God through our righteousness, then we don't understand the gospel, for we are only sinners apart from him. But this refers to our spiritual walk. It does not imply perfection, or no one could apply. Look, our prayers are not heard because of our own worth. Uh, our, prayer, our prayers are not heard because of our own worthiness or sinless track record. First John tells us otherwise. But if we are aware of unconfessed sin, we need to do what the psalmist says in Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. He says, "Quote: If I regard wickedness or sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear." End quote. So we should always draw near to God on the basis and worthiness and merit of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet at the same time, examining our hearts, we don't need to be perfect, but we need to walk in the light of turning away. And as we plead for the saints, it's not based on us, but it's all based on Him. 
And then he, I think, also here notes that the prayer of a righteous is as powerful as to the God to whom we pray. Look, there's no power in prayer itself, but rather prayer links us to God who is all-powerful. The point is, is that prayer is not just some wishful thinking. It's not just a throwing up of the hands and saying, God, take it, let go and let God. That's not a biblical phrase. When we pray, we communicate with the almighty creator of the heaven and earth who loves us and invites us to his presence to receive grace. And we wait for his answer. But I think he's also saying here that prayer is available to every righteous believer. Prayer is available to every righteous believer at every time and every place. Sometimes we think if we can just get enough people to pray, if we can just get enough of the right people praying, if we can just do everything we need to do to pray, then God's going to really hear that pray prayer. And we say the more we pray, the more God gets blessed, and God will answer that prayer. Look, what he is saying in verse 16 is that the prayer of a righteous person will be heard is not the number of people who pray, but the character of the one praying. Have you confessed your sin? Have you trusted him for the answer? And have you prayed no matter what the result may be? And that's what he's getting at. And finally, he says here, as we plead for the saints, looking at verses 17 and 18, he says that consistency is essential for effective prayer. Consistency is essential. He says now when you, he says in verse 17, he just kind of cuts into it. James does this very often, kind of like Mark. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Now, when you hear the word Elijah, you hear the name Elijah, what do you think? He was an amazing prophet, right? He was great. He, he fought the prophet Baal and King Ahab. And the, and the things that Elijah accomplished and experienced really were just amazing by God's grace. But I invite you to read a little bit more about his life and remember that he was a man that demonstrated great courage. But here's the temptation. God answers Elijah and you say, well, I'm no Elijah. Well, you're not and neither am I. And it doesn't seem too comforting until you pay attention to the words that he says. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You know, there are other moments when he panicked and he ran away for his life. There were moments when it seemed like Elijah believed that God could do absolutely anything. But there were other moments when this man, in a suicidal depression, told God, God, if, if you really love me, just take my life. That's all you have to do. Now, I love the range of Elijah's life because I can find me in there someplace. Because somewhere between great faith and suicidal depression, great faith and, and suicidal depression, this man is just like us. Listen, the power in Elijah's life was not Elijah. The power in Elijah's life was God, and that's the lesson. And when I come to him in faith, amazing things will happen. Elijah was a man who lived in ungodly times, but his prayers affected an entire nation. Elijah could pray as he did because he knew the living God. Elijah prayed earnestly and faithfully because he recognized his own inadequacy in the face of powerful enemies. He literally prayed with prayer. So Elijah, being a man with a nature like ours, recognized his own inadequacy. And that led him to pray earnestly. And earnest prayer stems from a sense of personal inadequacy, but also from a knowledge of God's total adequacy. So friend, as you plead for the suffering, verse 13, as you plead for the sick, verses 14 and 15, as you plead for the saints like Elijah did in verses 16 through 18, we need to remember that God is faithful as we pray to him 
as we seek out the counsel from him as we go before him. And finally, our last point is we seek to land this plane. He says, plead or pray for the sinful. Plead or pray for the sinful. Look back at verse 19. He says it this way. He says, my brothers, if anyone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, the first question you have to ask, and I think it's a good one, is James talking about backsliding believers here, or is he talking about sharing or evangelizing those who don't know Christ? I mean, the first part of verse 19 would say that James is talking about believers. He says, my brothers. But then when you get to verse 20, it sounds like he's saving a non-Christian, an unsaved person from hell. So James is referring to one of these, these groups. The straying one may be a temporary rocky soil like Jesus described it, a believer or a thorny soil believer. But neither type is truly saved because they do not bring forth the fruit of saving faith. So in James's terms, their faith is a dead faith. Go back to chapter 2 for that. Or he may be a true believer who's falling into sin. So how do we know which group this person is in in verses 19 and 20? What he does tell us, though, and that's why I, this last point was named such, he tells us to plead for the sinful, to, to reach out to them. But how do we know which one we're dealing with? The answer, as it always is in Scripture, is by the response of our efforts to restore that person to the truth will show whether that person is really in the truth or whether that person simply has a knowledge and has never been saved by that truth. You see, if a person walks away from the Lord and goes on in sin and continues to sin with no repentance, most likely that person was never really saved. But if that person repents and comes back to the Lord, his faith is genuine. And so by helping that sinner turn back and preserving his faith and obedience, you saved his soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. But to stray from the truth implies that departing from the truth or, or some core Christian doctrine is in view here. If you're seeking to help restore a person who's, who's in a doctrinal sin, who's denying Jesus, denying the scripture, the resurrection, whatever, you probably need to probe for some underlying sin. There's something under the hood in the engine that is causing this to come forth. But notice he says that true Christians can be delivered from the truth. And he says, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back brings back a sinner, rather, from his wandering, will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's be clear here, Christian. As he says, plead for the, plead for the sinful. This ministry is the responsibility of all believers, not just pastors. Notice in verses 14 and 15, he calls out the pastor elders, but here in verses 19 and 20, he doesn't do that. James addresses the church, my brothers, and is general when he says, the one who turns him back he does not say one of the elders or pastors turns him back. This ministry of reaching out to the sinful who've walked away is the responsibility of every Christian everywhere during all times. Galatians 6.1, Paul puts it this way, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Spiritual means spiritually mature, to be walking in the Spirit and developing the fruit of the Spirit. This means that unless you're a relatively new Christian, if you know someone who's straying from the church, you must go to him or her and turn them back to the Lord. 
If you feel inadequate to do this, go talk to the pastor elders. Get the guidance or help from them. But to ignore someone who is straying is like watching a member of a search and rescue team from a firefighter group sit in their cars listening to a CD or a new radio or stereo in their new fire truck while people in the building burn. It's not a loving thing to do. But this ministry of verses 19 and 20 requires both a search and a rescue. Searching is required because professing believers will fall into sin and stray from the flock. We must go after them. We must seek to restore them. If you know someone who's confessed Jesus Christ but has dropped out of church, you need to go looking for it. And in church, I want to remind you, that's what we've tried to do. I don't say this in any other way except this. We have unfortunately uh, had to dismiss over 500 members here at Tower View Baptist Church in less than a decade. And even a decade before that, I think about an equal number under another pastoral leadership. Why? Because people who professed Jesus and said they were going to follow Jesus are no longer, at least as far as we can ascertain, continue to, to walk with Jesus. There's a searching required. There's also a rescue, and I think that's the important thing here. Rescue is required because it's seldom that straying persons find their way back on their own. The enemy confuses them, or they're ashamed of what they do, they're done, or what people will say, and they need instruction so they don't repeat the process. They need someone who knows God and the way back to teach them the ways of God to avoid and resist sin in their life. But the search and rescue ministry is difficult and it's disheartening. It doesn't always turn out the way that you would hope. But when you find a straying sinner and get him back when the path of destruction happens, it brings great joy. So James is saying that their soul will be reached. James is talking about saving a soul from spiritual death. The only other time James uses death is in chapter 1, verse 15. He says, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And so if a person claims to know Jesus and turns towards sin and continues on that path, he may not be a true believer, a true Christian. But in terms of 1 John 3, he's only revealing that he never knew God. They were among us, but they were not of us. And if God uses you or a group of people to bring that person back to the Lord, then you saved his soul from a path that would lead to spiritual death in a literal separation from God in a lake of fire called hell. To rescue someone from a burning building is a great thing. To rescue someone from eternal burning is a far greater thing. And finally, he said their sin is going to be removed. Look at the end of verse 20. He says, and it will cover a multitude of sins. James sees primarily to be pointing in the direction of Psalm 32.1. He says, how blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. When a sinner turns back to the Lord, he forgives all his sin. If a professing believer, someone who claims to be a Christian, persists, persists in sin, he should not be uh, assured that he's eternally secure, that he knows Christ. The Bible never gives that comfort to someone who doesn't repent of their sin. The warnings in Hebrews are designed, among other passages, Hebrews 5 and 6, to make a person examine whether they know the gospel, whether they're really saved. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You remember what that says? It says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the Lord. But James has something here. Is that by leading a sinner back to Christ, you help cover his past and future sins from public view. James implies that when you help restore a sinner in a rescue mission, you must be careful not to reveal his sins any further than is needed to restore that person. 
Your aim is always to restore the sinner before God and man, just as God did with you when he saved you out of darkness and brought you into the wonderful light. So friend, as you think about these things today, James gave us four groups. He said to, to plead for the suffering. He said to pray for the suffering. He said to plead or pray for the sick. He said to plead or pray for the saints. And finally, plead or pray for the sinner. As we close this book, this is street-level faith. These are practical issues. We covered a lot of ground today. This was originally going to be two sermons. You got a two-for today. You got a two-for-one. But whatever you are today, may I just encourage you to, to reread this passage, study it, pray over it, ask God, Lord, what is it in this passage that I've heard that I need to examine in my own life? with people around me who know Christ or who don't know Christ. But again, if you're watching this and you're not a Christian, we are super stoked, super excited that you joined us. But please know, contact us, call us, get a hold of us somehow, message us, drop us a note below in the comments. We want to hear from you. But God needs to hear from you more importantly. God is so close. James 4 says that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And Acts 17 says that he's not far from each one of us. In fact, Jesus, God's son, came down to you to seek you. You know, religion says that we will find God, but God said he came seeking after us. What an amazing God. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal and everlasting life. Let's pray today as we close. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the street-level faith of James. And Lord, as we close up this book, we're just reminded once more of the realities that we're to live out. Father, we can never live out all these things that we hear day by day, step by step, without misstepping. But even as we do, Lord, get us back on the right path. Father, praying for those watching today, would you be glorified in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, thank you so much. God bless. We look forward to seeing you. If you have any further questions, you can find us out. More information at towervkc.com. God bless, and have a great day. Bye-bye.